So good to be with you. It's kind of funny. Every time I come to Saskatoon for a ministry thing, whatever it might be, it snows. Right, and like I went to Bible college here, so I'm, I'm, and I grew up in Northern Ontario, so I know that it snows, and I know that it gets cold, but it's like, I've been here in October, like now, and it snows. I was here staying at Barry and Stella's once in May, and it snowed, and it's like, I don't know if it's me, or what it is, but it's just one of those things. I have my, my, here's one of my, this is probably my favorite funny Saskatoon memory. I was, I was here actually on the trip when it snowed in May. I, I was leaving a couple days later to, to fly back home to Victoria. And um, I'm going through security at the airport. And I, tr- I travel a fair bit, so, you know, it's like I kind of have a pretty good idea of what's supposed to happen and how things are supposed to go. And the line's moving along. Everything is really good. And then everything just grinds to a halt. You know, and I'm, I'm like, well, somebody's probably got, like, a big bottle of shampoo in their bag or, you know, whatever it might be. But, but that's not it. I see, I, I glance over, and, and there's... Two, two of the security people and they've got this, this white styrofoam container in their hands. And, 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 and what's happening is, is the, this lady is going through and uh, she lives in a northern community and she's bringing KFC back to her, to wherever she lives, right? Bring, bringing home a treat. I mean, the whole plane, right? Because it was all carry-on. They would have been just dying with that KFC, the smell of KFC for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours in a plane. That'd be something. But, but they're trying to decide if the gravy is a liquid, a gel, or a solid. And I just, it was kind of like, well, what is it? What is it? I was like, just give it five minutes. It's going to be a solid. Let the lady take her stuff home. Let the lady take her stuff home. And so, Anyway, uh, let me tell you a little bit about our work. First of all, let me say this. Thank you for your partnership with us. Um, we, we could not do what we do without churches like Neighborhood and people like you who generously partner and support us. And we have, I'll tell you in a little bit about our team and where we're going, but all of this is built on our faith in God and the generosity of his people and he has proven himself faithful and faithful over and over again. Here's our mission. We provide excellence in spiritual and emotional care to elected leaders across Canada. So at, at a provincial level and at a federal level, we are, are giving ourselves to, to finding a way to be a blessing and a presence in their lives. We are the only national legislative chaplaincy in the country. We're non-denominational. We are a ministry of presence. If you take me to the next slide, we'll be right on track. We're a ministry of presence. So we're not there. We're not twisting people's arms. We're not saying, here's a long list of things that we want you to do. We're not, we're not, you know, trying to browbeat them into something. Um, David Wells, our general superintendent, coined this for, or shared this phrase with me as we were, were just getting started and I was kind of looking for language and he said, Tim, you're a ministry of presence. You show up, you're present, and you trust God to use you in that place. And so by God's grace, by God's grace, uh, he has given us a team of spiritual care providers. We, we, it depends. Sometimes they're spiritual care providers. Sometimes they're chaplains. It just depends on the language and the context. But spiritual care providers from BC all the way to Quebec City. And Barry was our first chaplain or spiritual care provider here in Saskatchewan. Give the man a hand. And uh, very thankful. On, on Wednesday morning, yes, when, Wednesday morning, we are, are hosting our, our um, 
Saskatchewan. It's be our second Saskatchewan MLA prayer breakfast down down in Regina, and Barry and Stella are going to be there with us. And when Barry was there, well, it was just very small, just a handful of people. But as the Lord has blessed that, we're going to have probably close to 200 people in the room that, on that morning. So it's going to be a fantastic time. Hey, here's a picture of our team. Just to, that these are all real people. All of them, I promise you, didn't just pull them off the internet. I'll tell you, the couple in the top right-hand corner, Grant and Ann Claire, minister in Quebec City. And so when I saw the Quebec flag on the wall, I've fallen in love. I'm a Westerner to my core, but I've got a big crush on Quebec, and um, which is uncommon. Um, but but I, uh, I, I love Quebec, so I took a picture of the flag and I said, I said look at this church I'm, I, I'm at this weekend. They've got a, a Quebec flag on the wall. Oh, she says, that's just so amazing and wonderful. I hope someday you get to meet them. But anyway, there's our team. They are spread out from Victoria, like I said, all the way to Quebec City. And we'll talk a little bit more about, about some of the people that are, are closest to kind of your world and, and what you're doing. Here's our ecosystem. This just kind of, this is what we've built out as the Lord has kind of given us some strategy. So the heart and soul of what we do is providing chaplaincy care to politicians. It's why we wake up in the morning. It's what we live to do. And so that just means we're showing up. We're being an encouragement. We're being a blessing. We're looking for opportunities to pray for them and to minister to them and to to talk with them. Some of the people we work with are Christians. Some of the people we work with would never darken the door of a church but we get to minister to them anyway. And so serving leaders is the first thing we do. Praying for leaders is the second thing we do. I, I, I pastored for a lot of years and I knew that if I didn't have people praying that I was, this is gonna be a pretty tough go. And so we mobilized people to pray along with us. And today we have prayer networks in every province, again, from BC all the way to Quebec, every Monday to Friday, we pray for a different member by name and uh, we do all of that. And that God does re some really, really cool stuff with that. The third thing we do is we build leaders. And so uh, we've developed two, two tools that I'll tell you about later. And, the, and finally, what we do is we mobilize people to pray for, for uh, during elections, um, asking the Lord to use that opportunity to um, accomplish his plans and purposes for our province or for our nation. And so, so you know, um, my grandma had these... Um, those snow globes, remember? Those little snow globe things. And I always loved going to, it was the highlight of my visit sometimes. It's just going there and shaking up the snow and seeing what would happen with it. And elections are kind of like these moments where God has an opportunity to shake things up. And uh, we believe that God raises kings up and he lowers them down according to his purposes. And we trust that, that in the election process, as we invite the church to pray, that he's working out what he's doing or what, what he wants to do, even though we don't always see it the, the way, it doesn't always come out the way we, we think that it should or that we want it to. But we trust him and we know that he's doing a good, good work for us. On the spiritual and emotional care side, I want to introduce you to our Saskatchewan chaplain. That is the amazing Fred Hill on the right-hand side. He joined our team in 2020. And um, and has just doing a tremendous job. He uh, he is Chaplain Fred, and everybody down in Regina loves him, and they look for him. and And it's been remarkable just to hear the stories of how God is using him to crack doors into people's lives that sometimes wouldn't give us the time of day. But they, he has just established such credibility that that people are reaching out to him. I told you earlier about our daily prayer networks. This is Heather, who runs all of our networks, and over 
oversees that. We have a team of volunteers who write prayers for us and a team of volunteer directors and coordinators who look after that. In the grand scheme, we have eight prayer networks across the country. We've published, I mean, this is a little bit dated, we probably published almost 18,000 prayers online. Funny story, sometimes people Google a politician's name because they want to complain about something and they find our website, they find the person's name on our website because we rank higher than the politician does. <laughs> Love what the algorithm can do for you. We rank higher than the politician and then they're looking for, because they're mad, right? The only reason you look for a politician's name is because you're mad about something. So they're mad and then they call our, our number and they leave a long voicemail about what they're upset about and demanding that somebody calls them back and it's like, well, should I or shouldn't I? But we do, and, or we forward it on and we say, hey, somebody got looking for you got us instead and, and that kind of a thing. We've got about 9,000 prayer partners across the country. I mentioned preparing leaders and um, I was sitting um, in May at the National Prayer Breakfast with, a, um, with, with an MP out of Alberta and we've become good friends and, and uh, he leaned over to me and he said, you know, Tim, he said, we all want people, we, we, we want Christian leaders, we want godly leaders in office. Every Christian across the country, you'd ask them, you know, what, what do you want to see happen politically? We want godly leaders in office. He says, but nobody's building a pipeline to make that happen. Funny Alberta pipeline, you see what he did there. But, but, but he said, you know, we, we, we need to build a pipeline so that we've got a constant stream of people coming in. And so, so, we had during COVID built an online leadership development course that we call Lead Well. And this spring, our course got picked up by Providence College outside of Winnipeg, and uh, they turned it into a certificate for us. And uh, we're going to we're partnering with them. We're taking role, uh, taking enrollment for a 2024 cohort. It's just education on demand. It's all online. You don't have to go to classes. You can just do it. So here's my my little pitch for you tonight. There's gonna be an election probably in 2025, a federal election, there'll be a provincial election coming shortly in, in your beautiful province. And, uh, and so, you know, if you're thinking you might wanna take a run at something, I would say this, friend, take this course. Take this course, invest in yourself, because what it's gonna teach you is how to lead from a kingdom perspective. See, in the political system, if it, it, when it's partisan, when, it, when, when we're, we're governing from or leading from a partisan perspective, it just means this, that if my team is in power, I win all the time, me and my people win all the time, everybody else loses all the time. But in the kingdom, when we lead from a kingdom perspective, everybody wins. There are no losers when we do it the Jesus way. And I know it's like very aspirational and, and some of you are going, well, that'll never happen. Well, you know what? After doing this thing for 17 years, there were people who said in the beginning, it'll never happen. But here we are on the brink of something amazing happening I'm gonna tell you about in a minute. So I believe that we can transform the political system in our country just by planting, building a leadership pipeline and planting people in place all across the nation on both sides of the house who can lead from a kingdom perspective. Let me tell you about what's happening in Ottawa because I'm so fired up about this. Uh, I have, I, I, I started the ministry in Victoria. That's when I met Barry and Stella. And then um, I started commuting to Toronto. And my wife loves me, but she let me go to Toronto for two weeks at a time. And so I was building the ministry in Toronto and trying to, you know, get some traction. And we, we were able to do that and laid a foundation, found somebody who could 
take this on and, and frankly do a much better job at it than I was doing. And, and so Charlie the chaplain, seriously, that's his handle, Charlie the chaplain. Charlie the chaplain is there in Toronto. And so in 2019, I, uh, I, said, um, I said goodbye to Toronto, came home, and the idea was in 2020, I am off to Ottawa. But there was this thing that happened in 2020 this thing that, that happened. And, um, and so uh, Ottawa's kind of been a, it's been a bit of a, a project for us, but we're in this very, very exciting place where we have a qualified couple, fully bilingual, because you need to be to function in Ottawa, fully bilingual couple, ministry heart, ministry, ministry background, familiar with us, was committed to come to join our team by July 1, 2024. In a, amen is right, hallelujah. I raise a hallelujah. We've also got, we've also got a retiring 20-year Hill staffer. So staffers are the people who make government run. A Hill staffer who's, who's committed to joining our team. We, we met each other at, over lunch one day and started chatting and uh, he, oh, he calls me Timmer or Timster or Timmy or kind of, I think he's a former hockey player. So it's just like whatever comes out in the moment. And uh, Timmer. How can I be on your team? I like, well, you want to be on my team? He said, just come be on the team. And, uh, and so he, he wants to work with staffers. There are about 1,500, imagine this. There are probably 1,500 staffers that run Parliament Hill. Most of them are young men and women starting out in their careers. And the vision, the strategy is this, that if we, can, if we can reach them and impact them, first by serving them and helping them learn to do their jobs well through Joel's expertise, but, but secondly, leveraging the relationships we build there into ministry opportunities, many of those young men and women move on either to serve at high levels in the bureaucracy or they run for office themselves. And so we have this opportunity to, to, to sow into the future of the nation just by investing in young men and women. So we have an Ottawa opportunity that requires an Ottawa miracle. And what would it be if, if a missionary didn't come and talk about a miracle? And so here's, what, here's what's going on. In order to get this couple started in Ottawa, we need to raise $120,000 in cash and pledges by, by at least April, by, by the end of April. So as of this week, we have cash in hand and pledges almost $50,000. So that leaves us with a gap of 70 or 75,000. And, um, and so we're, we're in a pretty good place. We've made really good progress from June 1st until now. So, you know, I, I just kind of have to break it all out into bite-sized chunks or it doesn't make any sense because if I say we need to raise $75,000, you're all gonna say, well, that's way more money than I can give. And, uh, and then everybody does nothing. But if I break it down into bite-sized chunks, it looks like this. We need 63 people to commit to $100 a month for one year. That gets this couple off the ground and going. 100 bucks a month, 63 people. I believe we can find 63 people. And so if you wanna be a part of, of that and be one of the 63, then uh, come talk to me later and, I'll, and uh, I'll hook you up with that. I'll hang around, I'm not shy, and uh, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to meet you. Hey, um, have any of you done a DNA test? You know, like those like Ancestry and Me, or you know, if the police were involved in your DNA test, don't raise your hand. But, <laughs> but otherwise, did you, did you do one? 
Really? There you go. Yeah, yeah, a few. Yeah, fantastic. So, so a few years ago, somebody, somebody said, hey, I got an extra DNA test. Do you want to do it? And uh, I thought, yeah, sure. It's A, a it's free. And, and B, it, it kind of sounds fun. And so as I'm, you know, I get the package, I open it up, I, and I read the instructions. It was a day of miracles because I read instructions. And as I was reading the instructions, as I was reading the instructions in there in bold letters, caution, right? Participating, submitting your DNA may produce results that are surprising and upsetting or disturbing to you. And I thought, fantastic. I find out all the dirt on all of my relatives. So I spit more into the tube. Sealed it up, sent it off, and I, you know, eagerly waited. I got my email that said your ancestry results are in. And, and uh, you know, in my case, there was, well, there were a few unknown relatives that popped up. No one rich, sadly. No one royal. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to be a duke or, a, you know, a prince or a whatever. But, but you know, it turned out kind of the way that, that I thought it would. Mostly Germanic heritage, uh, Western, Eastern Western Europe, and, uh, and that's where I went. You know, every so often I, I get a thing that says, oh, you've got an update, and it's like, oh, you have a French connection in your DNA. It's like, yeah, no, I, I really don't, you know. But anyway, thanks for trying. Thanks, thanks, thanks for coming out. So when I began... When I began doing what I'm doing with, you know, in, the, in this kind of legislative chaplaincy role, people started, you know, sending me articles and, and you know, pointing me to websites and, and all of that stuff that, that talked about the Christian heritage of the nation or the scriptural heritage of our nation. And they, they kept pointing to these 25 verses on Parliament Hill that are inscribed into the walls. There you can see the one that's there. I think, uh, what is this one? Give the king your judgment, so God. Yeah, so there's, there's the three that are on the windows, and we're gonna hold up this slide for a second, and I'm gonna kind of unpack this, this for you. So, so here's, here's the premise, is that, that these verses on Parliament Hill are, are an expression of our identity as a Christian nation. So there are three verses. This one, the, the, the first one says, this is this out of Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments and thy righteousness to the king's son. Now it's remarkable to me that in the wisdom of God, that window faces to the south and directly towards the prime minister's office, which is on the other side of the street. On the east side of the tower of, of, the, of the peace tower on the east side of the peace tower that window as it looks out across, across eastern Ontario and Quebec into the Maritimes of the Atlantic is he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and then the one on the west side facing towards Saskatoon and British Columbia and, and, and the rest of western Canada says where there is no vision the people perish so as we think about this a little bit, there are, there are two assumptions that are made. The first assumption is this, that, that the verses are there because of an act of parliament. Because when you stop and think about it for a moment, how could it be that there are scripture verses, that there are scripture verses inscribed on what is for us the most significant symbol of our nation and democracy, the Peace Tower in Ottawa? Like, how did those verses get there unless Parliament passed a bill? 
And the second assumption that is often made is that, that the verses reflect the wishes of our founding fathers. The somewhere there in the, you know, with, with the, you know, the fathers of confederation that, that they kind of mapped out this Christian foundation for the nation and, and these verses represent their wishes and ideals. So those are the assumptions. But what we need to understand is, is that, that what we believe about how the verses got there shapes how we pray, it shapes how we think, it shapes how we respond to government and to culture. So I, um, I did a, a DNA test. And my, my DNA test was this, I searched every government decision from 1867 until now, looking for the reason that those verses are there. Now, I, I didn't actually go into the Library of Parliament, I, I had an MP staffer take a look for me and see what, see what they could find. And, and here's what we discovered, is that, that there is no act or bill Imagine this. There is no act or bill that approves the placing of the scriptures on the building. Moreover, there's no proclamation or decree by the governor general that would have put it into law that those verses could be there. In fact, the only thing you find about those verses is someone after the fact, after the building was completed and the verses were visible, there were members, MPs in Ottawa who took exception to those verses and raised it in question period and asked, why are these verses here? And someone said, well, we don't know. And, and, and the, um, the, uh, the Speaker of the House ordered that they be removed, but they came back and said, it's too late, we can't remove them. I raise a hallelujah, right? The work is already done. Oh, that would actually preach pretty nicely, wouldn't it? Right? It would, it would preach really nice. But, but, but there is no bill. There is no proclamation. There's nothing that says that those verses should be there. So I want to I tell you the story, because there is a story about how they got there. There's two faithful men, Jean Marchand, who was an architect out of Montreal, and John Pearson, who was an architect out of Toronto. Here's the backstory: February... February 1916, the House of Commons is in operation. They're, they're meeting, it's, a, it's an evening session, they're meeting, and um, an MP steps out of the chamber and he goes to what was called the reading room, not like the reading room that some of you have in your home, not, like, not that kind of reading room, but a real reading room where you went and read. And, uh, and so, so there, he's in the reading room and, and the report says that, that he, he felt a rush of heat from behind him. So he turned around and there was, a, there was some newspapers on this table that had caught on fire. So, okay, kind of weird, right? The newspapers would just sponta- spontaneously combust. But in the moment, he's not really thinking about why they're burning, just that they're burning. So he calls for one of the, the security staff to come, and the two of them try to put the fire out. But by then, the fire spread because, because in this reading room, I mean, this is pre-internet, this is, you know, pre-tablets, this is pre-all of that stuff. So there are newspapers hanging on spindles all around the perimeter of the room. And the fire from the table gets into the newspapers and there's plenty of airflow and whoosh, now we have this fire in the House of Commons. 
that begins to tap into the varnish on the walls and, and now things are really starting to hum and go. So this thing is burning and they call the members in the house, the place is on fire, we need your help. So the, the MPs and, and Hill staff are literally piling books and documents in the snow outside of, outside of what was of, of center block while the building is burning. The Ottawa Fire Department is trying to put it out and, uh, or at least slow it down. And, uh, and Prime Minister Borden calls a cabinet meeting. And if you've been to Ottawa, or you can picture it, the building is on fire, center block is on fire, and Borden and the cabinet are meeting in the Chateau Laurier, which is just across the canal. So that's all happening. I think it's February 3rd, 1916. So, um, so you know, the building's on fire. So a little bit of history for you, you probably know this, but, but in 1916, Canada is in the middle of World War I. So we're in the middle of World War I. And not only are we in the middle of World War I, 1916 was the bloodiest year, the most deadly year for Canadian servicemen of the entire First World War. So Canadian soldiers, or, or ca Canadians, 60,000 Canadians lost their lives, gave their lives in service to their country, mostly men, but some women too, gave their lives to serve to, to, to in the defense of freedom and democracy during the First World War. You ready for this? 30,000 of them died in 1916. Many in the Battle of the Somme, but, but all through the war, it was just a bloody, a literally bloody, awful time for our nation, for the men that were there, and for their parents and families that remained here. The building burns to the ground. Okay, so all these things are happening at the same time. By July 1st, 1916, the government had approved plans. They'd hired these two guys to create the, the, the drawings, the architectural drawings, and the plans for the new building. Now I'm going to say this, but I'll tell you a funny story. I first did this talk in it, just outside of Toronto in mid-September for a, for a large prayer breakfast there, and I used this expression. I said they literally built back bigger and better. The Peace Tower is taller, the building itself is a story higher, and it's got a bigger footprint than it had before. So anyway, after the breakfast, these two ladies come to me and say, hey, that was a really great talk, but we're concerned about your globalist terminology. I'm like, say what? Well, we're concerned that you might be a globalist, like me. I me, mean, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm a globalist. And, and I said, well, well why, why do you think that? And they said, uh, well, well, because you said build back bigger and better. And that's a globalist term. And I thought to myself, well, actually, I'm a former youth pastor. Bigger and better was something I did on a Friday night when I had nothing else to do. Right? Take one thing and trade it for something bigger and better. And, you know, did, did that whole thing. So here's what happened. These two guys, Marchand and, and Pearson, um, th those two ladies, nuttier than a bag of granola. Just, nut just nutty, 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 nutty. They were like crunchy peanut butter nutty. So, so these two guys, what they did was they mapped it out. They, they, they designed the whole building, and no one noticed that they put scripture verses 
into the plans. Like, see, there's three verses on the outside of the building, but if you were to go into the memorial chamber, which is about two-thirds of the way up of the, of the Peace Tower, I mean, right now it's all under construction, you can't go in there, but, but, but when it's open again, in that room, there are scripture verses. I mean, there's more scripture verses there than there is in most churches. It's just amazing to see what has happened. So they, so they left the fingerprints of God all through the building. Part of it was because, because the Peace Tower was, was meant to be this kind of national, you know, cenotaph, if you will. And, and so that, that was part of it, but part of it was the culture of the time. Say, when you lose 30,000 soldiers in a single year, there are memorial services, I mean, really, way too many memorial services every week all across the country. And so people are used to hearing scripture verses and they're used to hearing words of comfort from the Bible. And they're used to, to kind of having a, a spiritual element in their lives because, because that was just kind of part of what happened, was happening tragically in those days. And that's how the verses got on the building. But let's play with two ideas for a moment. Let's, let's say for, for, for a second that, that, uh, that the verses are there by government decree. That, you know, that the, the parliament had decided that these verses would all be put in the building and, 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 and there was some giant statement about, about the nature of our nation the spiritual nature of our nation. Suppose those, those verses are there by government decree. Well, I would say this, that, that a state-proclaimed religion falls far short of what God has intended for us to enjoy and experience. Like, would you rather have what we experience tonight and have this meaningful, personal encounter with Jesus and experience his presence? Or would you rather have, the, you know, would you, would you rather have people saying, well, you're Christian because you were born in Canada and you're a Christian nation because you've got verses on your building? Like one is amazing and incredible and the other is just dull and dead. You see, here's the important piece is that a nation doesn't become Christian because of what's written on the walls of a building. Like if it was that easy to make Saskatoon Christian, we could all just get together and hand out cans of spray paint after the, on your way out, pick up a can of spray paint. Here's a verse, here's an address. And you could just go down to every government building, every city, you know, down to city hall, wherever you find, and just tag scripture verses all over the place. I mean, the Saskatoon Police Department would probably be here by Tuesday, but you know, like if it was just that easy to make the place Christian, well, we could do it that way. But it's not that easy. It's not that simple. A nation doesn't become Christian because of what's written on the walls of a building. It becomes Christian as the people of God, you and me, rise to our destiny and live out our faith before our community and our neighbors. It doesn't change because of what we write on walls. It changes because of what's written on the hearts of men and women because of what they see in us. Let's suppose that, that the verses are, are a spirit-inspired call to action. Maybe those verses aren't there as a declaration, but they are, they're there instead as a catalyst to spark our faith, to believe for something for our nation that we have yet to fully see. 
What if those verses that are planted there, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, is is more of a, a signpost or a billboard that declares the heart of God for Canada rather than saying, well, it's a declaration of our forefathers, therefore we are. We see if, if we take option one, right? The verses are there, that makes us Christians, so there. Right? If, if we take option one, here's what happens. You might have seen this on social media. I'm left engaged in a culture war trying to turn back time. I'm just angry about everything. I'm just fighting to turn back time. I just want it the way it was in 1965 or 75 or, man, even 85. Right? Or I'd even settle for 95. I just want to turn it back to where it was. And we're in a culture war. And we always lose the culture war. We always lose the culture war when we, when we come at it from that perspective. Option two, I'm not at war at all. Instead, I'm motivated by a message of hope, of optimism, and anticipation of a better day as I look toward God at work in our nation. You see, one, one makes me angry, the other fills me with faith to believe that God wants to do something incredible in our nation through me and people who, who, who want to participate with him. So how do we, how do we change our nation? Like what, what do we, I mean, if I said, you know, how many of you think our nation should change? You'd all raise your hands because our nation's a mess. And our nation needs God more today than ever, ever before. So, so, so what do we do? How do we, how do we, how do we get there? Well, we could start here. If our heartfelt prayer for whomever sits in the prime minister's office was, give the king your judgments and your righteousness to the king's son. Where there was just this genuine cry for God to intervene in the life of our prime minister and executive council and that he would pour his wisdom, he would pour his heart into their lives, into their hearts. And out of that, we would believe for good and godly and Christ-like decisions. Like that would be a big step forward. And I know some of you are going, yeah, well, that, that would never happen. I was like, well, I don't know, read your Bible. God's done some pretty amazing things with leaders who didn't seem too interested in him. Read your Bible. Right? So number one, how does Canada change? Change the way we pray. Number two, what might happen if we were consumed with seeing the dominion of Canada or the dominion of Jesus established in the heart of every Canadian? What if, what if the thing that I got up to be a part of every morning wasn't my own thing, my own little thing, but, but the thing that drove me was the missional call to make disciples of my neighbors and friends and the people who live on my street so that the dominion of Jesus would be established in their hearts and lives. Oh, that'd be pretty awesome. That would change a lot of things for us. Well, how are, how are we changed? Because we're part of Canada. And, and, and what, 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 how, how are... How are we changed. <laughs> well, the, the window that faces to the west where there's no vision, the people perish. What if, what if we could just capture, what if we could just capture the heart of God 
for our nation. Not what we think the heart of God is. Not what we think the heart of God should be. Not what some, you know, person says it ought to be. But what if we could very prayerfully and powerfully capture the heart of God for our nation and align ourselves with his purposes and plans for our nation? What might happen? Well, I think that the possibilities are endless. But here's what I believe. I believe that if we were able to do those three things, if we were able to do those three, three things, I believe that the fire of God's passion for Canada would overtake our hearts. We would just be consumed with his love for our nation. And that passion that he has for our nation would change our minds, our attitudes, and our actions, and we'd begin to live like we've never lived before. We would begin to press into him and take risks and do things and say things that wouldn't make people angry, but instead would draw people to Jesus because of what's happening inside of us and what's coming out of us. And number three out of that would come the revival that so many of us long for that would sweep our nation from sea to sea to sea and Canada would be saved and Canada would be changed and Jesus would be glorified. Why don't you pray with me before I pass it off to Pastor John. Father, you are here. You are speaking and you are working you are moving and we would pray this tonight that you would help us to align our hearts with yours that you would help us to get over however we might feel about the prime minister and you would give us a passion to pray for him without judgment without malice but with grace asking that you would give the king your judgments your wisdom your insight your understanding and that our nation would be blessed because of it God I pray you would give us the courage to live boldly towards the vision that you have for this great land that we get to call home God, keep our land glorious and free. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.